I want to uh, begin a three-part series this morning, uh, and the series is entitled Sit, Walk, Stand. It's a study of, uh, in Ephesians, and it's based upon a book that I read when I was about six, 15 years old by a, a, a beautiful Christian uh, teacher and leader from China years ago named Watchman Nee. And it's basically what we're doing in this is we're able to look at the three major emphases of, of Ephesians and get a kind of a quick overview of the book and, uh, in, a, in three weeks and, uh, and some, some things that I think will really help and, and build us up. Um, so the title of today's message is Sit, okay? Sit. And that's what we're Yeah. Again, this, we use the title and the framework of this message based upon that, that book by Watchman Nee many years ago. Uh, but talking about Ephesians, um, Paul's epistle to church at Ephesus and um, Paul in his um, letter to the uh, church at Ephesus, he fulfills a promise and an intention that he's expressed. And his intention is to fully equip that congregation to live for Christ, to serve God, to, to walk effectively as believers in the world. In Acts 20, 20, Paul um, tells the Ephesians as he prepares to leave them that he has kept back nothing. He says, I've kept back nothing from you that was helpful. I think as Christian teachers and leaders, we can hope that in our, in our work, in our ministry together, that we keep back, hold back nothing that will help God's people, but that we seek to, to, to expand or to expound the whole counsel of God, as it were. Uh, Paul, as he prepares to leave the Ephesians, he, uh, he tells them he's kept back nothing from, from them that's helpful. In Acts 20, 27, he says, I, I've, not declared, I've not hesitated rather to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He's given them a broad panoply of truth and, and, and information and, and divine revelation that will, that will inform their walk with God. And so uh, we gain the benefit as we read Ephesians from uh, Paul, of Paul's diligence because in the book of Ephesians, he is very comprehensive in the way that he expounds. And as uh, most of his epistles, he begins with a doctrinal section where he talks about who we are in Christ and what we've been given. And then from there, he talks about what we are to do and how we are to live and how we respond to that. What, what happens here is that Paul knew that the Ephesians would face challenging times after he had departed from them. Um, in verse 29 of Acts 20, again, you can read 20 around, around Acts 20, you'll see some of the history of this. He told them that he knows, he says, after my departure, I know that savage wolves will come in among you and they won't spare the flock. And even today, maybe the savage wolves are not always in the form of physical teachers, people who actually come and become a part of, of a congregation and infiltrate it and, and seek to turn it astray. Maybe the savage wolves are represented sometimes by cultural uh, icons and by thought forms and ways of, of, of and worldviews that are contrary to, to, the, to the word of God. There are other, but there are enemies that attack God's people that, that, that oppose us in our quest to live for God, to be obedient and to do what's right, right? And so he's trying to strengthen them and uh, he's trying to build them up against those false teachers that he knows are going to come. They're false teachers. They're predatory, if you will, and they're going to come am among them. And, and so he concludes his departing words to the Ephesians in Acts twenty thirty two. He says, and now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Aren't those beautiful words? He says, I, I, commit, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, and it's able to build you up. And give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified, all who are set apart. And that's what I would want for all of you, for anyone that I serve. I would want to commit you to God and to his word and, uh, of grace. Notice that, his word of grace. And I, I, I hope that as a church together, we, we're working together to build each other up and to, to find that inheritance among all who are sanctified. 
And so it's probable that the letters Colossians, Philemon, and, and, and Ephesians, which are called the prison epistles, were probably written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome, uh, probably around 61, 63 A.D. And when some of you talk about 63, you're talking about 1963. Just 63, with no 90. And he wrote from Rome where he was in prison, probably delivered by Tychicus and Onesimus. Now, there are three main uh, themes of the book of Ephesians. The first one is basically has to do with our riches as Christians in Christ. He says in Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Then his second emphasis is probably salvation by grace through faith. And that's why I want that to be my emphasis as well. He says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then he talks in Ephesians, the, the third theme in the book is found in Ephesians 2, 10, where he talks about the fact that we are God's workmanship. And so there's a work of Christ in us, and he's building us and making something of us. We are his workmanship. We are his, we're his, 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 his masterpiece, if you will. So there are three postures that we see in Ephesians, sit, walk, and stand. And this morning we're talking about sit. We're talking about the fact that God made Jesus to sit and he made us to sit with him. Look at these words in Ephesians 1, 17 through 21. He says this, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that your eyes and your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He goes on, he says, He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Notice those words, seating him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title given. Who's in charge? Jesus. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Notice those words. You see what he's saying here? God's power was exercised and demonstrated in Christ by by God raising him from the dead and seating him at at his right hand in, in the heavens. The writer of Hebrews also notes the fact that Jesus sat down. Hebrews 1.3, he said this, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And making, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So beyond the resurrection, we have Jesus' exaltation and the fact that he sat down. And you're sitting right now, all of you except me. And often we sit because we're tired. You used to say, I sing because I'm happy. Well, I sit because I'm tired. Understand this. Jesus did not sit down because he was tired. He sat down because he was finished. His work was complete. The Father's will had been accomplished. John 19, 20, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. In that moment, he had completed the, the, the plan of salvation. Sometimes you see that, well, that means it is finished. my life is finished, I'm dying. No. The plan of God was finished when he died, but then he rose from the grave, further sealing the devil's fate and further sealing our destiny. That's why he sits down. It's symbolic of Christ's accomplishment on our behalf. The fact that it really is complete. It really is finished. It really is a done deal. And I don't want us to miss the significance of that fact. 
Because there's a, there's a further implication. Listen to these words from Ephesians 2, 6 through 9. He also raised us up with him. Say with him. And seated us with him, say that, seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Look very closely at verse 6 again. It says, he also, next slide, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him. You, you get what he's saying here? Christ sat down, but you're supposed to, you're seated as well. And so there's a sense in which we have been seated. There's a sense in which we share in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his rest. Right? And so, what, what's the meaning or the significance of this, having been seated with Christ in the heavens? We got, what, we're, what we, we have to do is, 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 is search out some of the significance to us personally. Because it can remain in the realm of rhetoric. Well, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Yay. Or it could be something that really makes a powerful impact upon our lives because it conveys a powerful truth. Right? And there's, there's, there's a few things, three things about this. Number one. The fact that this, this, this simple truth, as demonstrated here in Ephesians, the fact that Christ sat down at the right hand of God and that we are seated with him. He has raised us up and made us to sit in heavenly places with us. This is the foundation of our faith. It's really, this is really the heart of the gospel. That we can do nothing to get saved. We can do nothing to be more righteous. Now, follow me. We can do nothing to be more forgiven. We can do nothing to be more accepted in heaven. In our own strength, of our own works, what we bring to the table, we make no contribution to that. We have only one responsibility, and that is to believe and to receive. And there's, there, there's paradox embedded in this, and sometimes when you teach this, people struggle with it. But you know, don't you have... Start here and take this as it is and take it on its own merits because it's the gospel. I, when I was growing up, I, I never could hear us. I never heard a, a good sermon on grace because every time somebody preached grace, they would always have to say, but you better live holy. Take the butts out of it. Start with, with salvation. Yeah, yeah. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it is by grace you have been saved by faith and that not of yourselves. It's not of works. It's not what we do. See, other religions uh, don't have this feature in Almost virtually every religion I know of, other than Christianity, it's about what you do. And there's usually some way that you earn your way or work your way into a certain place. There's a, the onus is really on you. You discover the religion and, and then you, you find your way in and you do, you, t- you do the steps and you do all the things that they tell you to do. And then you get to the place where you, where you think you're supposed to be. But it's all based upon human effort. But what Paul is suggesting to us is the futility of human effort. To save us from our sins. See, we want to start by walking and standing. We want to do something, but God says start by sitting. You sit first. Watchman Nee said this, Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. 
Acts 16, 30, 31, Paul and Silas in jail, great earthquake. Remember, they're still there in the jail, and the, the earthquake happens, and, and the jail, the walls fall down, and they, they don't run away. The jailer is apparently awestruck, and he asks him a question. He says, sir, I guess in that moment, I'd want to get right with God, too. Earthquakes, and, you know, he said, what must I do to be saved? And sometimes I hear people saying when I was coming, they said, well, you know, you need to, you need, I, heard, I actually heard a guy they say, you, you want to be saved, you got to stop sinning. You got to quit drinking. Get you a nice suit. Start paying tithes. I don't know, heck, do the hokey pokey. I don't know. That's what it's all about, you know. <laughs> we, we, we expect, what must I do to be saved? We expect a religious answer. Take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Take a pilgrimage to Azusa Street. Take a pilgrimage to somewhere. Do something. You need to get some skin in the game. You need to, you need to shed a little blood yourself. You got to show that you're serious. You got to work for this thing. You got to earn this thing. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? That, that's the big question. And they said, verse 31, Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And look, he, he says, and your household. What must I do to be saved? Work for it. Get better. Do better. Try harder. No, believe. And believing means receiving and accepting that gift. So this is the core of the gospel. And this is the one thing that we, we have to make sure that we get a grip on. The fact that we, we don't contribute to our salvation. All we do is respond to a loving God who, is, who has initiated the process and who welcome, who calls us and woos us to, to himself. And what we do is we respond by placing our faith and trust in him and saying yes. And that's where we, that's where we begin and that, that's where we sit down. See, we think of it as that's where, we, that's where we stand up and start walking. That's where we sit down and all of a sudden we find a, a kind of rest that we've never experienced before. And the other thing is just to be seated with Christ. It's, it, it, does, it suggests a posture of rest. Standing and walking, what, is that, what does that draw upon? Well, your, your, your nervous system and your muscles and your bones. And, and it takes energy, right? And you can get weary. You get tired of standing, right? You're tired of walking. Sitting is what? Relaxing. Now, right now, some of you might be on the verge of, of, of nodding off. I have now heard two people say that they, they don't mind that because they realize that people are so tired and they find rest in the, in, in the house of God with God's people. That's fine with them. So that, don't you go to sleep on me, though. <laughs> Sitting is relaxing because you place the weight of your body on that chair. And so because God's work of creation was complete, he could rest. And so in Christ, since his work of redemption is finished, he sat down and he invites us to sit down and rest in him, with him, in what he has done. I know we historically, I, we all, you know, some of us grew up at church, you know, and they tell you, you know, he just served a lot. It's always L-A-W-D. <laughs> Your mama was probably telling you, you need to get yourself, go get yourself saved and serve the Lord. You say, yes, mama, and then you went and did something else. And when you got about 40 years old, you came back. We talk about serving the Lord. Uh, I was a little ditty they used to sing. My, 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 my mother-in-law and them, they used to say, have you any time to serve the Lord, to serve the Lord, to serve the Lord? And, I, you know, on one hand, I understand where they're coming from with that. But when it comes to our soul salvation, when it comes to being right with God, it's not about, it doesn't begin with us serving the Lord. 
it begins with us allowing the Lord to serve us. Paul, in his masterful sermon in Athens, where he engages with the intellectuals and and, uh, those who are looking, who are discussing uh, some unknown God, and there's a shrine to, he... uh, he, he lets his, his, his readers, he informs them that not only does God not dwell in temples made by human hands, and sometimes we have to remember that as well. We need to build a house for the Lord. The Lord said, I got a house. It's in heaven. You're my house. I live in you. He says, God doesn't live in temples made by human hands, but that he is not served by human hands. Look at Acts 17, 25. He says, neither is he served by human hands, that's God, as though he needed anything. You see, you gotta, we have to get our perspective straight. Because we think we're doing, we're, we're like bringing added value to God. Oh, God, I know you really, oh, God is really dependent on me to preach. If I don't preach, the gospel won't get preached and God's going you know, to be missing out on something. He says, Not, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. You've got to get this, this, this perspective straight, get the priority straight. It's, it doesn't begin by us serving God because we can't serve God. We can't do nothing for God really in that sense. And you notice the way we serve God after salvation as Christians is not by serving God directly other than worship, but we serve him by serving other people. God doesn't need your money, but people do. God doesn't need your time and your, and, and, and your, and, and your, and your gifts and your talent. He gave those to you to share them with people. So Paul says, understand the way it works in God's economy is that it begins with God who serves us first. We, we can't add anything to God. He's not served by human hands, but he himself gives Everyone, life and breath and all things. And I would add, and salvation. And, and then think about Adam. He was created. What day was he created on? Well, I see you guys, you Bible scholars, you're taking a long time to answer that. The sixth day, right. What comes after the sixth day? And the seventh is called? And what did God do on that day? Why did he rest? Because he was tired? <laughs> And because he said, it is, it is good, right? right? Everything he made, he said, it is good. He's finished. He's done a good work. He finished. Adam was born on the sixth day. So the first full day of Adam's life was the what? Sabbath. He begins by resting. He begins his existence with rest. Yes, we were created to work. Yes, we were created to serve. Yes, we were created to do things. And, and that's not discounting that. But we're also created to rest. And there's a rest that has priority in our lives. Jesus came to bring rest. And I say this to people, to a people in a culture where we're perpetually tired because we're overworked and overdriven and, and overtaxed and, and overstimulated and over everything. But Jesus came to bring rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. one of the first Bible verses that really impacted me when I was a young believer. And Jesus says this in Matthew 8, 11, 28. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you a job. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will, I'm going to let you serve me really hard. I'm going to give you more work. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. One feature of our salvation, a prime feature, is the fact that it is, it is a kind of rest. God calls us to a resting place. As a young believer, I hadn't thought of Christianity in terms of rest. Because all I was being, I was always hearing folks talking about what to do and what not to do. And how hard to work and and, and, you know, it's holiness or hell. And, and, uh, and, and, all, and everything was kind of the basis of salvation. And I saw people that were struggling real hard, you know. And it's not that the things I was told to do or, or, or not to do, not that those, those admonitions didn't have their place. 
We be singing, man. I'm running for Jesus a long time. Ain't got tired. Yeah, you tired. I mean, everything was work. I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord. I believe I'll die in the army of the Lord. If I'm running, for, I'm running trying to make 100. I just thought they were talking about 100 years old. They mean 100%. But it was that, you know, and I understand, you know, if I labor, God's going to give me a crown. I understand kind of where that's coming from. But sometimes in our thinking, we think of Christianity starts with what we do. And if we don't do, we don't get and we don't receive. But when you talk about being right with God and your relationship and your forgiveness and the fact that you have the gift of eternal life, the fact that, that you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, that doesn't begin with what you do. And you, you, you don't do that. God does that for you as you accept his finished work on the cross. Amen. I mean, all of these expressions have their place, but they're not the starting point of the gospel. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. And he says, I will give you what? I will give you what? There's a, there's a sermon coming this spring on the Sabbath. It's a big deal. There's something that will be looked at that we, have, we, 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 we just drive ourselves crazy. And we just chalk it up. Well, you know, I'm, I'm doing all the things in life. And then I'm serving God. And, that's, and, you know, and, sometimes, and sometimes that's what, what, what our calling is to do, to expend ourselves. But understand that the core of the gospel has to do with a kind of rest. Jesus invites us to a place Rather, he invites us to place our burdens on his shoulders. He invites us to place our sin on him. The Bible says he became sin. He became sin. He took on our sin. He who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness in Christ, the righteousness of God in Christ. And that didn't have to do anything to do with us trying real hard or working real hard. It has to do with what Jesus did. It says God has reconciled us to himself. You didn't reconcile yourself to God. You didn't like call God up and say, God, you know, I, I know things have been a little tough between us. I know I, I might have upset you a few times, but, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm extending the olive branch to you, God. I'm, gonna just, re- I'm just reaching out, man. You know that you. <laughs> no, he's, it's the other way around. He comes to us in, in the person of Jesus Christ who, who reveals him to us in his fullness. And he, he comes to us and just demonstrates his love for us. The Bible says that this, here in his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to get good and get right and for anybody to do anything. God took the initiative and did it on his, on his own initiative. Jesus invites us to, to place our burdens on his shoulders. Our position in the heavenlies. This is, we talk about positional versus experiential. There are things in the faith that, that, that there are realities that are positional. In other words, that's spiritually who you are in God, how God sees you versus uh, what you're living. And so the, the, the positional aspect of it is that we have been seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where you live, whether you know it or not, not whether you whether you're still struggling and trying to prove to people that you're all right, whether you're still trying to prove to God that, that you're worthy of salvation, whether you're still trying to atone for your own sins, you, you may be in that space. You may be in a legalistic framework of mind. You may have been raised among people that were legalistic, and you may struggle with that, but it doesn't matter. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ, and you have the privilege of realizing that, appropriating that, and walking in that reality, and receiving the peace and the joy and the that comes from knowing that, 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 that it's, a, it's a finished work. And that, I know you're not a finished work. I'm not a finished work. But my salvation is, is a done deal because Christ finished on the cross. And so our position in the heavenlies is rest because the weight of our sin has been lifted off of us. Our, off of us, our eternal destiny our, and, and, and life and everything rests on, on something, or I should, should say somebody external to us. And that's God, not us. 
my destiny is not totally dependent. There's certain things that God gives me and that I have to do. I understand that. But as I place my faith in Christ, where I end up at the end of this life is not, is not based upon how hard I work or how hard I try or how sincere I, I am. But it's based upon the fact that I have placed my trust in Christ and received the fruit of his finished work. And then, thirdly, this idea of our position in the heavenlies as being in a position, a posture of rest, it's, it's not only a posture of rest, but it's also a posture of receiving. Again, I, I quoted Watchman Nee a few moments ago, Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. And Christianity is a work done. It is a work completed. And so we're saved by rest. Sit down and enjoy what God has done for us. You get that picture? Just like you're sitting right now. Your whole weight is on that chair. You don't have to like, now if the chairs were shaky, you might have to kind of halfway prop yourself up. But the chairs are good. We pay good money for those chairs. And so you sit and you rest. And when you leave here, you won't go, you know, you'll feel, in fact, by the time I get done, you'll, want it by the, you'll be ready to stretch your legs and walk home or wherever you go. But you, 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 the weight of your body is on that chair. And that's, that demonstrates trust because you thought when you came in here that these chairs were pretty sturdy. And so you didn't, you didn't subject them to a, a test. You didn't, you know, put a 25-pound weight on it or, or you didn't, you know, take it, pick it up and look at the legs. You didn't, you know, you just sat on it because you trusted that chair. And so you rest in Christ. You sit down and rest in the grace of God because you trust God. Sit down and enjoy what God has done for us. We're saved by resting, by sitting. Uh, you know, I remember in uh, John, the 13th chapter, when Jesus washes the uh, disciples' feet. I was going to say feet. He washes their feet. You remember, you know, you know Peter and his brashness. It's always like, it's always like uh, you know, he's always got something to say, right? And it's always, you know, off the top of his head. There's a lot of that going around these days. People just saying stuff. And he... He, uh, Jesus watched, he, said, and he comes to Peter, he said, no, I just imagine him jumping, no, Lord, you ain't never going to wash these dogs. Be- why? Because his idea is Jesus is the rabbi, the teacher, the exalted one, the, the Messiah, and I'm Peter. And so as a gesture of, of respect and as a gesture of Maybe a little bit of ego because Jesus offers, but no, let me show how noble I am and how respectful I am. No, you're not going to wash my feet. And, and I was always struck by, by, by the words in, in, in verse 8 of John 13. He says, Peter, it says, you will never wash my feet, Peter says. And Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. That's a picture. See, Peter would have wanted to wash Jesus' feet. That seems, I mean, and there was a woman that anointed his, his, his feet with, with, with perfume. And that was a different thing. And then he received that and he accepted that as an act of worship, as an act of honor. But in this context, Jesus is serving first. And Peter doesn't get it. He thinks that I need to take the initiative and that I need to, stop, you know, it's, no, no, please don't. You know, Peter, Peter, what he had to end up doing is sit down and let Jesus wash his feet. Right, right. He says, if I don't wash you, you have no, you notice it's kind of a, a dual meaning there because he doesn't, didn't say your feet. If I don't wash you. See, if, if, God, if Jesus doesn't save you, you have no part with him. If Jesus doesn't change your life, you have no part with him. If Jesus doesn't, doesn't, doesn't intervene in your circumstance, take the initiative and, and turn your life around. You of your own accord 
And so if you say, no, Lord, let, let, I, I got this. Jesus says, you have no part with me. Oh, but Lord, if I, give me a little time. I'm going to try hard. I'm going I'm 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 to clean my, I'm going to fix myself up first. I'm going to get myself together. Let me just, you know, let me, let me, let me do this and do that first. And I'll come and say, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part with me. So Peter had to sit down and let Jesus wash his feet. Salvation is not something you do, you find, or you initiate. It is a gift that is given to you. Ours is to trust, believe, and receive. Some of us struggle with receiving. But I want to tell you, there's no shame in receiving. Some of us don't know how to graciously receive gifts. Some of us can't graciously receive compliments. I heard the story of a woman, a man walked up to a woman who had just sung in the church. She said, oh, you did. That was a beautiful solo. She said, oh, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. Well, tell the Lord that he was, that he was a little flat on the, on the third verse. <laughs> There's no shame in receiving. Some of us, are, some of us people try to help us. We, we say, oh, no, we don't want to take it. What, why? Is it pride? Probably. Is it, is it, is it that, you know, we, we, we really care that they, we don't want them to, to sacrifice their resources? No, I think it's pride. And I think one of the greatest leaps of, 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 of progress and maturity as Christians is that when we learn to graciously receive and just say thank you, whether it's people helping us, people giving to us, people blessing us, or whether it is the wonderful gift of God, salvation that's come to us through Christ, we don't say, well, Lord, uh, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you I can do this. Don't do that. That's, that sounds very much like Peter, doesn't it? You say, no, Lord. You just say, well, we played. Thank you. Thank you. I receive. There's no shame in receiving. There's no shame in, in being given a gift. And so to, to, to be right with God, we have to come to the cross. We have to humble ourselves and receive this gift that, God is, that Christ has provided for us. And I know you say, well, the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. But let me tell you something. You, if you have nothing to give until you have received. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul writes, he says, for who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? dealing with the Corinthians and their egotism and in their bickering and their posturing and in their uh, division because of their various leaders and their, and their selfish behavior. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? We act like we got, we got it going on, but everything you got, you were given by God. The breath in your lungs right now came from God. The fact that you woke up this morning came from God. The, the, the strength and the vitality and the ability to do and the intellect that you have and all of the gifts placed in your life, everything you have, all your money, all your family, all your, everything in the world, it all, you, you, you didn't create nothing Man, that's right. except a, a lot of problems for your mama when you was coming up. <laughs> everything we have. So we come to the cross humbling ourselves to receive the gift that Christ has provided for us. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Oh, I already said that. So before we can walk or stand, and that's, we're talking about sit, walk, stand, three, three postures. Before we can do that, before we do anything, we have to learn to sit because we have been seated. And we've been positionally seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Heaven is your place of residence. It is your place of citizenship. We have to learn to rest in the fact that our sins have been forgiven. We have to learn to stop trying to pay for forgiveness. We're not asked to pay. We're not asked to repay. We're not asked to reimburse God for the blood of Jesus. We're not asked in any way to earn our salvation. 
We simply receive it by faith. And you say, well, I know that. Yeah, I know you know that. But you know what? Many of us still struggle at various places in our lives with that, with, with trying to merit the grace of God, trying to earn or trying to prove or, or feelings of inferiority, feelings of guilt, feelings of condemnation. You feel like, I know, I know I was baptized. I know I got saved. I know I gave my life to Christ, but I just know what I did. I did so much. And God says, you know what? On Jesus, all the sins of the world were placed. So there's nothing that you've done that is beyond the power and beyond the scope of the work of God in Christ, beyond the blood of Jesus. And so when you're tempted with guilt and condemnation and shame, just sit down. You know, you know, sometimes you tell your kid, just, just go, go sit down. And that's what, that's what God says to us. He said, but you, I've, I've, I, have, I have seated you, so sit. When you're feeling driven by religion in the sense that your best is never good enough and you're always having to try harder and people around you are, are showing off their spirituality and their spiritual wares and their gifts and, and, and sometimes lording it over you because, you know, because they're human, right? When, when, all, when, when, you're, when you're tempted to doubt yourself and to feel and wonder if you're really saved, although you have given your life to God and you believe the gospel and you really trusted Christ, just sit. When, when, when you feel always compelled to try harder to prove something, sit down. Give it up. Don't just do something. Sit there. Because when you realize where you've been seated, positionally, you can sit down in your mind and in your emotions, in your head. And sit down and rest. And you can finally find some peace and finally enjoy what it means to be a Christian. When you realize you've been seated, you can rest from your labors. And then the service that we render to God, I work hard for God, yes, but it's not because I'm, I'm not trying to prove anything. I work hard for God because I love him with all of my heart. I serve him and give my all to God because of what he's done for me out of gratitude, not guilt, not com- compulsion. And so in doing that, when I have to take a rest, if I, don't, if, I, if I miss it sometimes, if I'm not always up to, some, to your standard, anybody else's standard, I don't worry about it because I know that my, my soul is anchored in the Lord and I'm doing my best to live out this Christian life. But it didn't start with me doing it. It started with me receiving and it started with me sitting you can sleep at night when you when you learn to sit you can sleep at night knowing it's not about your perfection but it's about his perfection you pray with confidence knowing that your heavenly father knows how to give good gifts to his children that's what he says what jesus said right he says if you being evil relatives you know knowing this fact human beings we we're sinners by birth you all still know how to t- take pretty good care of your kids. You give good things to your children. If you're, when you, you know, when Max comes to his dad and asks to play basketball, he doesn't take him and throw him in a snake pit. <laughs> he says, well, if you guys are like that, you know that God is like that. God loves to give good gifts to his children. And the greatest gift that he gives to us is the gift of himself, the gift of salvation, the gift of new life, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of grace, the gift of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And then he lives through us and enables us to to do the things we need to do. But it begins with sitting. So as as you move forward in your Christian life, make sure that you're seated. That's what, I was on an airplane recently, and, and you know, when they get ready to take you, have to, you have to take your seat. You have to put your seatbelt on. You know, there's a certain time when you get up and feel like walking around, by the time the plane is charging down the runway, I think I'm going to get up and get my, <laughs> the, 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 if I just sit down, right, right. you know, 
know, in rough turbulence. I was on a flight, and uh, the whole flight, they didn't even serve beverages. They served water because they anticipated it was between Las Vegas and Reno. And, it was, and so they said, sit down. And so I'm, people were trying to sit. No, stay seated. That's what God is saying. That's the, the seatbelt light is on, folks. Stay seated. Stay grounded. Keep your feet firmly planted on the ground in the foundation of salvation, Jesus Christ. Remember, never forget that you have been seated with Christ in heavenly places, and you can rest. I there was a, there was a song, and I didn't. I question the value or the meaning of this lyric, but there's this one song where the singer says, "I'm all churched out," um, and I I never heard a phrase like that before. Uh, but I think I can relate sometimes because I think sometimes our church experience becomes a kind of religious treadmill because we're seeking blessings, I think, that are really already ours. If we just, we just kind of chill and just, just receive them, we're, we're seeking experience. We're seeking uh, to be a part of a, a religious subculture, to participate in that. Uh, and some of that is good and helpful, and a lot of it is just stuff that just keeps us going and busy and, 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 and hyped up and and. Like why? Sometimes it's like, why are you searching for what you already have? And so, I just encourage you this morning. Sit. You understand what that means now? Yes. All right. Yes. God bless you. Um, the um, so we're gonna we're gonna as we're gonna we're gonna by going to this table this morning, partaking of this bread and, and this wine or grape juice, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to remember. His death on the cross for us, what he did for us, with thanksgiving. And our eating and drinking symbolizes our partaking, our eating. You know, Jesus said, you know, we are to eat his body and drink his blood. And people thought early Christians were cannibals. They really did. But it means fully participating in the life of God in Christ. And uh, so we're going to do that this morning once we're reminding ourselves and reminding the community around us that, yeah, we we, we have full buy-in to this. You know, we, we, we are fully... We're all in on this, and we give our all, and we give thanks. We're grateful to God for what he's done, and then we'll, we'll give ourselves a chance to, to search ourselves. Because we, going forward, we want to make sure that, we, that we're keeping our heart open and, and, and pure and clean before the Lord. But, again, that's not, that's not because you're trying to get saved. It's because now you are, and now that you are, you're growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, elders, I'm inviting you to come forward and, and lead, us, lead us forward. So in keeping uh, with uh, the order of our service here in communion, I'm going to read uh, from the book of Corinthians, uh, chapter 11, verses uh, 23 through 26. And after that, uh, Brother Richard will lead us in prayer.
And then we will ask you to come down the aisle. We'll serve you communion here at the table. For those who do not want to walk down here, just raise your hand as you're in your seat. Brother Man, Walter Man, will make sure you get served. And as you receive the elements, please go ahead and take them. So now 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for letting us see another day today, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for our lives, our health, our strength the blessings that you've showered on us, Lord. And Lord, we thank you most of all for your son. We thank you that you sent him to us. We thank you that he was obedient to you, laid his life down in sacrifice for us. Lord Jesus, you were wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon you. With your stripes, we are healed. We now embrace that healing. We embrace forgiveness. We embrace that you took our punishment for us. We re embrace reconciliation. Lord, as we take a moment to examine ourselves, examine the week that we've had or the month that we've had or even the year that we've had, Lord. We repent right now of what we've done or said in word or deed or even what we have refused to do. Lord, we repent. We ask your forgiveness, Lord. And Lord, our burdens, we lay those at your feet. We cast our cares on you, Lord. And we reject the enemy. We resist him, and we know that he has to flee. The lies that he whispers into our ears that we are no good, that we'll never be anything. God's salvation is stronger than that. And we thank you, Lord. So as we take these elements, the bread, your body broken for us, and the cup, your blood which was poured out for us, we receive the gift in Jesus' name. Amen.